Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. EM Cases is part of SREMI, Schwartz-Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute, the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for information and education purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. In part one of our two-part podcast on wrists and carpal bone injuries, we covered constructing an initial differential diagnosis from the history, physical exam tips and tricks, mastering the wrist and hand x-ray, and the dreaded drudge injury. We also talked a little bit about Barton fractures and Smith fractures. Now, especially important in part one is that we reviewed the surface anatomy of the hand and wrist with the memory aid So long to pinky, here comes the thumb for the carpal bones, which I highly recommend that you listen to again and review in the show notes if you haven't already. Because in this part two, we'll dive into the most commonly missed and mismanaged carpal bone injuries, what I like to call the big four, triquetral fractures, lunate fractures, hamate fractures, and scaphoid fractures. So if you imagine the surface anatomy of the hand and the wrist that Dr. Cial reviewed in part one while I'm discussing these injuries, then you'll be golden. And after we discuss the big four, we'll drive it all home with a summary and some more master tips. But before we get into these injuries, I first want to kind of step back a little bit and take a more bird's eye view of this topic of carpal bone injuries and ask Dr. Stefano, How should we sort of understand carpal bone injuries from an anatomical perspective, from a mechanistic perspective? How should we think about carpal bone injuries from a philosophical point of view, shall we say? Uh, Good question, Anton, because we should approach the wrist with as eyes wide open as possible and thinking as always like we do in medicine for anything, age-related prevalence of disease. That is the lens through which you see these MSK injuries and wrists in particular. What do I mean by that? I'm, I'm going back to tissue quality always. If you're young and you have open growth plates and you have a Fouche injury with reasonable energy, you're much more likely to have a fracture that involves a growth plate of the distal radius or the diaphyseal metaphyseal junction of the distal radius. These are weak points and the carpal bones are relatively strong. If you're elderly and you have low bone quality, low bone density, this is, goes back to the classic Abraham Colley's paper. What did Colley's describe? A fracture in older women. And because the metaphysis of the bone is relatively low density and hence is the weak link in the chain. So my simple approach to these things, big picture, if you're young, if you're old, it's much more likely to be a distal radius fracture, all other things being equal. For the great in-between, which still includes, surprisingly, all of us here on this podcast, you are as likely to have a carpal bone injury or an intercarpal ligament injury as you are a distal radius fracture. So it's the vast majority of patients we see, let's say arbitrarily between 20 and 60 years old, between 15 and 60 years old, you have to think about the carpal bones and the intercarpal ligaments. So, So that's your frame of reference right off the bat. Excellent. So little kids, they're much more likely to break a long bone. Older people, much more likely to break a long bone. All those folks in the middle, they're at much higher risk to break one of the tiny little carpal bones that always confuse me and that I need the memory aid so long to pinky. Here comes the thumb to remember. (laughs) 
And Dr. Seal, I did mention the big four. Could you just comment on why it's these big four? So again, it's the triquetrial fractures, the lunate injuries, the hamate fractures, and the scaphoid fractures. Why is it that it's really these four that we need to concentrate on? As Matt was saying about prevalence, these four are the most important ones and the ones that if we, if we mismanage them and emerge, patients get harmed. So there are other injuries that are far less common, so far less likely we'll see them. And if they ever do appear, usually they're with another carpal injury, and therefore they just come along with a ride, as it were. Uh, so we don't have to fuss so much about those. But the four, as you mentioned, like the most common carpal injury. So if someone's going to have a carpal injury, the most common carpal injury is scaphoid fracture. And that's about two-thirds or so of diagnoses of carpal injuries. But before I started working in the fracture clinic, I'll tell you, I went out of the emergency department, it was probably 95% of my carpal diagnoses because I didn't know the other ones. So everything became a scaphoid fracture. And we see only what we know. So if we don't know these other exist, we can't actually make the diagnosis. So scaphoids, number one, about two-thirds of sca uh, carpal injuries. The second most common carpal injury is called a triquetral chip fracture. And it's off the dorsal aspect of the triquetrum from a fall on the outstretched hand. Their point of maximal tenderness is not the snuff box, but it's a little further along, which we'll chat about later. And if you identify these, that's 20%. 20% plus two-thirds, you got 85% of carpal injuries. Around 10% are around the lunate. So more commonly, scaphalunate ligament. It could be a lunate fracture. It could be, very uncommonly, perilunate or lunate dislocations. So these are all in the area of the lunate. And then the fourth one, only a couple or a few percent of carpal injuries is a hook of hamate fracture. And that has a particular story to it. And that also has a particular harm if we miss the diagnosis. So this is the reason we should focus on these four, understand the relative frequency of these. The same way with patients with chest pain, we're not diagnosing dissection at the same rate as PE, as, AOR, as ACS. We know the relative or frequency in which they come. We just have to know what's on the list and what's important to pick up. Awesome. So it's not just about scaphoid fractures, although we will come to scaphoid fractures and talk about how these are also sometimes missed and mismanaged. We'll talk about some of those nuances as well. So let's start with the triquetrial chip fracture. This is also a foosh, just like in a scaphoid fracture. But what else do we have to know in terms of the surface anatomy, what to look for on x-ray, and how we should immobilize these patients and have them follow up? Sure. So with a tracheal chip fracture, it's the second most common carpal injury. And if and if you're not driving, listening to this podcast, but you're sitting at home, you can take your fourth finger on the dorsum of your hand, walk down your fourth finger, you'll feel your fourth metacarpal. And then when you come proximal to the metacarpal, but a little distal to the ulnar styloid, when your hand is relaxed, there's a small little divot in the back of your hand. And that divot is the surface anatomy tenderness, like that's a point of maximal tenderness if somebody has a triquetral chip fracture. So when they fall on their outstretched hand, this is the second most common carpal injury, the triquetral chip, and it's dorsal. So if it's from a foosh injury, you know, some say it's a little avulsion. Some say it's actually the distal ulna hitting the triquetrum and it's, like a, it's actually banging against it. So it's not technically an avulsion, but either way, it's a common injury. And you feel, and they're tender there. And when they're tender there, then on your x-ray requisition, you can write rule out chip fracture, dorsal aspect triquetrum. And on the lateral view, and I'm sure you'll show it in the show notes, is on the lateral film, the radiologist will often say, 
on the uh, dorsal aspect of the proximal carpals, there's a small chip fracture seen dorsally. Typically, this is off the triquetrum. Clinical correlation is recommended. Because what you see on the lateral view is that small little chip at the level of the proximal row, but you don't know which carpal bone it's off of. And when you touch and you find the point of maximal tenderness, you can then clinically correlate and you can say that's the problem. Now, these, these trichretial little chip fractures, as they appear, they come in two forms. The vast majority are from a fall on the outstretched hand. That's a stable injury. They just need like a, something for comfort and protection, a removable splint, a fiberglass splint that you can take off. Anything like that is totally fine. They don't need to be formally immobilized, like for six or eight weeks, but it'll be sore for six or eight weeks. They can gradually get rid of that splint over time. There's a subset of patients that fall on the back of their hand. And if they fall on the back of their hand, they can have a similar injury. That's called a dorsal capsular avulsion fracture. And that just has a little more significance to it. You should be a little more careful with that injury. So just understand mechanism. If they fall on outstretched hand, benign injury, natural history is fine. If they fall on the back of their hand and generated the same injury, you need to be more careful. Okay, great. So it's sort of like the difference between a Coley's and a Smith's in terms of the mechanism. Coley's is a foosh, the Smith's is the back of the hand. And so this is really when you're thinking about ulnar side of the hand injuries of the carpal bones, this is the one. It's the second most common one. And again, the surface anatomy is so key. Just palpate along the fourth metacarpal and just proximal to that, you'll feel a little divot and that's where it is. If they're tender there, Take a good look, especially at the lateral view where you should be able to see it, but you sometimes can see it on all the views. So the ones that are a Fouche-type mechanism that are a dorsal chip fracture of the triquetrium, those ones you could just put in a removable splint like a Velcro splint for three or four weeks sort of thing and have them follow up. For the other ones, do they need a plaster of Paris or fiberglass cast, or can you also get away with just sort of a removable Velcro splint? I think when our level of concern is higher, our degree of immobilization is higher, our likelihood to refer is higher. So the personality of the injury, if it's a, if it's actually from a fall in the back of the hand, again, there's nothing specific to reduce as such, but they should be more formally immobilized and should be more formally followed up. But just because that fall is more likely to generate uh, leads to more sort of carpal instability. So I think that's something you need to be more careful about. Most of the time, it's a fall on the outstretched hand. But the only difference I'll tell you between the Smiths and a, when you say a Smiths and a Coley's, on the lateral film, they look different. This, on the lateral film, they can look quite similar. So it's not the image, it's just what actually the force that generated it that will give you the difference. And anytime there's a fall on the back of the hand, that's going to be more worrisome than a fall on the outstretched hand. Goes right back to history. Ask the patient, show me the other hand how you fell. And whenever they show you a fall on the back of the hand, your antenna go up, this is more worrisome. All right. It always comes back to mechanism, mechanism, mechanism. And Dr. DiStefano, any comments about the triquetrial chip fracture? Well, look, I, I love what Aaron was saying about mechanism. And there's a couple things you should think about. And they both start with the word back. Fall on the back of the hand or falling backwards. These are both red flags. You have more significant energy in a bad way that's gone into the wrist. So you should really think about that. You should perk your ears up when you hear fall in the back of the hand or fall backwards. You're much more likely to have a significant injury. Nice pearl. All right, so that's triquetrial chip fractures. That's number one of the big four. 
The next category of injuries I want to talk about are lunate injuries. And there's sort of a spectrum here. You know, you can get a perilunate dislocation, you can get a lunate dislocation, you can get a scaphalunate dissociation. Sometimes I kind of forget which one is which. Let's start with the least serious to the most serious. Dr. DiStefano, what's sort of the least serious of the lunate injuries? And then we'll kind of progress up. Anton, it's tempting to say the least serious is a lunate fracture, but that may not be the case over time. As with many things in the wrist, the real answer is it depends. Probably the least serious, if you're skilled and lucky and attentive enough to catch it, is a low-grade sprain of the ligament between the scaphoid and the lunate. And so how do you catch that? The rest x-ray looks normal. If you have ordered a grip view, a stress view that acts to pull the capitate down and try and wedge itself between the lunate and the scaphoid, and that view looks normal. There's no gap. There's no diastasis. How do you make that diagnosis? It's confidence about understanding a mechanism, typically a Fouche, and your physical exam, most importantly. If they are exactly tender in the space between the scaphoid and the lunate, and they have a normal rest film and a normal stress film, you can confidently say they have a low-grade scaphalunate ligament sprain. And that just needs to be protected. It needs to be protected so that they don't have another injury within the timeline for that ligament to heal. That's the one of least consequence in everything you've discussed. That's the least serious, the sprain. So let's, let's move up from there. If you could just give us sort of the spectrum of injuries, and then we can kind of go through them. Well, if we keep talking about a ligament sprain, and we say grade one is a minor sprain with no difference in the length of the ligament, either at rest or on stress, then grade two is more significant. You've torn more of the fibers. Now the ligament's going to get a little bit longer when it's stressed. So when you do your grip view, you'll see a bit of a gap between the scaphoid and the lunate, and it may be one or two millimeters, still significant. That one too needs to be protected, protected for six, eight, 10 weeks so that the patient doesn't have another interval injury and complete that sprain. In other words, they don't go from a grade two to a complete tear. The worst, of course, what I'm hinting at, what we're getting at is a grade three, a complete tear, a complete rupture of the scaphalunate ligament. If we're thinking about scaphalunate ligament rupture, that usually results from a high energy Fouche injury in someone with very good bone quality. Okay, so the distal radius is strong. Their carpal bones are strong. This is a young, healthy person with good bone density who's put a lot of energy into their wrist, and the weak link in the chain becomes the ligament, the scaphalunate ligament, where patients will have swelling and sometimes ecchymosis and a gap between the lunate and the scaphoid to some degree on their rest film, their standard films. And if you do a stress view, it's quite obvious. That's a surgical patient. And that's the one we really need to be aware of because their outcomes are much better if they're surgically managed within the first few weeks. Okay, so that's your ligamentous injuries. There's a sprain. Then as we go further up the chain, we get a scaphalunate dissociation where we'll see that David Letterman sign or we might have to do a clenched fist view to see that space. Um, even if it's just a millimeter or two more than usual. And then you can get into perilunate dislocation and lunate dislocation. And we'll we'll talk a little bit about more detail about those. 
But it seems to me that the theme here, again, is surface anatomy. And I just want to drive home. Dr. Cial, could you just go over, again, the surface anatomy? When you look at the dorsum of your wrist, you can find your ulnar styloid usually pretty easily. And if you were to go perpendicular across your wrist from ulnar to radial side at the level of the ulnar styloid, take your second finger and come straight down. So when your wrist is neutral, your second finger, follow it down, second metacarpal. And when it intersects with that line across the ulnar styloid, you're on your distal radius. And there's a little bony prominence on your distal radius, dorsally, that's called Lister's tubercle. So ulnar styloid across, second finger down, where they cross, you're pretty much right on Lister's tubercle. From Lister's tubercle, now you're going to go south again. You're going to go distal. Now start walking towards your second web space. So it's a little bit off from the finger, the second finger down. But as you go towards your second web space, about a couple of centimeters with your hand relaxed, when the hand is relaxed, the tendons are not taut. They're not kind of blocking you. They're kind of, they're relaxed as well. And your thumb dorsally falls into a little space. And that space, Lister's tubercle, go distal a couple of centimeters towards the second web space, and your thumb falls into the scapholunate space. So that is where they're tender when they have a scapholunate ligament injury. That is this, the little divot between the scaphoid and the lunate. And if you go from there a little bit towards, like almost over the third finger, ulnarly from there, that's the lunate. So that's what you know Matt was talking about, about being dead center part of the wrist. That's the lunate. Acutely, I'll tell you, like I see lots of people acutely in eMERGE and lots of people in follow-up in the fracture clinic. And when you see them acutely, it's really hard to tell scaphalunate space versus lunate. They're, they're just tender in the same area. It's hard for them to distinguish it. But if you touch either of those spots, they say it hurts. You have to worry at least it's a scaphalunate ligament. So that's why you'd immobilize. So that's scaphalunate ligament. Fourth finger down, that little divot is triquetrum. That's the other spot. And then we'll get to scaphoid and hook of hamate later on. Okay. And another way of thinking of the surface anatomy for uh, the lunate and the scaphalunate space is, you know, if you go from the snuff box and you just move ulnarly a couple of centimeters, you'll hit it. Agreed. The other thing I'd add to that is that that patient, when you see them in the emergency department, you may not be able to see the lunate is injured, but you think they're sore between the lunate or the scaphalunate area. It's different than the scaphoid. So if you're worried they've injured their scaphalunate ligament, or potentially their lunate, you're going to immobilize them, have them followed up anyways. And that's why it's important to touch them in places other than the snuff box. There's way more to the wrist exam than just snuff box tenderness. So, so lunate, scaphal lunate kind of are housed in the same place acutely. And your index of suspicion for either of them goes up. And if the x-ray doesn't show anything exciting, that's fine. You're going to immobilize on history and physical alone. I understand that the reason why we don't want to miss scapholunate dissociation is because of something called SLAC. That's S-L-A-C, which is scapholunate advanced collapse. Dr. DiStefano, could you explain what SLAC is and an scapholunate dissociation, why this happens? And then we can talk about what to look for on, on x-ray specifically to pick this up. Scapholunate dissociation, what does it mean? It means the ligament between the scaphoid and the lunate is completely torn. And so those two bones can move independently of each other. Why do they want to move? Because each one sits in a little cup, a little fossa in the end of the radius. It should be happy there. But there's a stressor. And the stressor is the capitate. 
The capitate's in the second row above the scaphoid and the lunate, and it touches both of them. And the capitate has tendinous attachments. What's stronger, your flexors or your extensors? Well, in the upper extremity, your flexors are stronger. When you make a fist or you go to grab something or you go to pull something, you are trying to pull the capitate to the radius. And the only thing in the way is the scaphoid and the lunate. And if they're attached to each other, then they form a buttress. They form a wall between the capitate and the distal radius. But if they're not attached to each other and they can move independently, every time you pull, grab, make a fist, you're pulling the capitate down proximally towards the end of the radius. And eventually that being repeated over and over and over again spreads the lunate and the scaphoid apart. And indeed with a slack wrist, truly advanced collapse, the capitate is now down between the scaphoid and the lunate. And the capitate under stress may touch the end of the distal radius. Yeah. Wow. That's some amazing detail. So with the slack, the reason why we want to avoid this is because they'll end up with arthritis for the rest of their life. They'll have pain there forever. And so it really is important to pick these up. So that's a bit about slack or a scapholunate advanced collapse, which you can get with a really bad scapholunate dissociation where it's totally torn apart. Any other long-term consequences that we have to think about when it comes to these scaphalunate injuries? If you do the x-ray, like as Matt tells you, they're tender over the scaphalunate space, you do a clench fist view and it doesn't open or maybe just opens a little bit. So one thing in females, there's more ligament laxity. In females, they might just open a little bit as physiology and not pathology. So sometimes in females, you might do a left clench fist view and compare it to a right normal clench fist view, the affected to the unaffected, to see what normal is for the patient. Because a little bit of widening in females may be expected. So this is one of the ways to separate physiology from pathology. Now, if you think they've got a, they're tender there, they're sore, they had a good mechanism, maybe there's a bit of widening, maybe there's not. If there's no widening, that could be a grade one injury to the, to the scaphalunate ligament. If there's a bit of widening, but it's not super wide, four or five millimeters, we generally don't measure, but it, it looks a little bit wider than the opposite side, that's a grade two. And if they're completely wide, that's Terry Thomas sign. Grade one and two are non-operative, but they can take three to six months to heal. And if we don't pick that up in the eMERGE department, if we, if we miss it, if we go, oh, your snuffbox is fine, you don't have a scaphoid fracture, soft tissue injury wrist, and three or four weeks later, they go back to sport. If they impact on it and it's stretched or partially torn, you can take that and make it a complete tear. You can take something non-operative and make it operative. So that's why it's important to at least suspect it. If you're worried enough to order a clench fist view, you are worried enough to immobilize them and have them followed up. It's like a scaphoid fracture. If you're worried enough to order a scaphoid view, even if it's negative, they still might have a scaphoid fracture. They're going to be immobilized and followed up. So it's that same mentality. If you have enough concern to order the test, the test is not good enough to rule out significant pathology. Okay, so that gives us a good idea of why we need to pick these up. I want to move on to the imaging. So you mentioned the Terry Thomas sign. Could you just go over the details, Dr. Cial, of what we'd look for on imaging and when exactly we should order a clenched fist view and what are we looking for on the clenched fist view? So the Terry Thomas sign is widening of the scaphalunate space. Some say three millimeters, some say five millimeters, but it's a gap between them. 
Now, this is just on the PA view. So not the oblique, not the lateral, but on the PA view, when you look at the carpals, generally all the spaces between the carpals should be equal between scaphoid and radius, between scaphoid and lunate, lunate and radius, lunate and capitate. All of these little spaces, one of the orthopedic surgeons said, you know, you should be able to drive a little toy car through the carpals and the lanes of traffic should be equal. So we don't generally look for this. But if we have index of suspicion and we start to look for it, we'll notice subtle pathology. And when you see that it's a little bit off, then that would be a concern that the scaphalunate space is wider. It could be acute. It could be chronic. If it's chronic, there tends to be a little bit of white sclerosis, something that suggests it's older. But if there isn't anything that way and it's acute, then you have to worry that if they're tender over that spot, then they've injured their scaphalunate ligament. So you're looking at that gap between the scaphoid and the lunate. A clenched fist view, as Matt mentioned, when you make a fist, you're tightening your tendons, your muscles are contracting, everything gets pulled down. And if, again, if you, if the, if the listeners want to just take their fist, just so you're looking at the side profile of your fist, like your thumb and your second finger, and then you make a fist. And when you make a fist ever so slightly, your metacarpal compresses. And what happens then is when you do a clenched fist view, it's not just closing your hand, it's actively clenching. You're, you're pulling the metacarpal down, you're pulling the capitate down, and if there's a, a weakness between scaphoid and lunate, it accentuates a widening. So this is why a clenched fist view is of importance. It's not just closing your hand and taking it, it's actively clenching. And sometimes we have to coach the patients, like, here, close your hand right now as hard as you can. When they take the x-ray, okay, just, just be as strong as you can for those two seconds because it might be a little bit sore for them to do it. So doing a proper clench fist view is important. So what you're looking for is widening. And as I mentioned, sometimes in females, you might get widening normally a little bit, and that's because they have more ligament laxity. So therefore, in a female, you might do a left clench fist view or, or affected side, and then do the unaffected side for comparison. And you're looking for this subtle widening. And if you see widening that's asymmetric, then that's abnormal. If you see no widening, that's a grade one injury. They're tender there. So you have to treat that as a grade one. If you see a little bit of widening, that could be a grade two. If it really gets quite wide on a clenched fist or at rest, it's more than three or five millimeters. That's considered a grade three or a complete tear. That's Terry Thomas sign. Fantastic. All right. So that's what we're looking for on the x-ray for scaphalunate dissociation. Let's move on to the dislocation. So the two dislocations in this area that we need to know about are the lunate dislocation and the perilunate dislocation. These two injuries are more rare than the scaphalunate dissociation that we just talked about, but they're important to pick up because they need to be reduced. The rest of what we're going to talk about in terms of perilunate dislocations and lunate dislocations really exist along a spectrum from that initial ligamentous injury. You're pouring more energy into the system. You have more deformity in the mechanism, more extension of the wrist going to hyperextension. Could you just go over for us, Dr. DiStefano, what we're looking for on the x-ray? And this is all about the lateral x-ray, right? It's all about the lateral view. There are some subtle findings on the, uh, the other views, but really you just need the lateral to make the diagnosis. We often talk about three cups of tea being stacked in alignment. And what are the three cups of tea, Anton? It's the distal radius, the lunate stacked on top of that, and then the capitate sitting in the lunate. So three cups of tea, collinear, absolutely stacked on the lateral. I must tell you, every time I see a young person with a high energy wrist injury, I go right to the lateral and I look for the three cups of tea. 
And if they're stacked together, if they're collinear, what do I mean by that? I can draw a line through the long axis of the radius and it bisects the lunate and the capitate. So if I see that, I breathe a sigh of relief because they do not have the ST elevation MI of the wrist. And that's really how we have to think about it. It's a bad disease of the wrist. And if I've ruled that out on the lateral film, I can breathe easy, take a moment, and now go look for more subtle features in the film and go back and re-examine the patient. Three cups of tea. Great. Okay. And so for the lunate dislocation, you're going to see the one cup of tea spilled over. That's the spilled teacup sign. And then for the perilunate dislocation, that one's a little bit trickier. Can you tell us about the perilunate dislocation, what we're looking for? Yeah. And that's trickier because it's sort of misnamed. We really should call it a capitate dislocation. The capitate is out the back. Okay. So what do I mean by that? I mean, two cups of tea are present on the lateral. The lunate is sitting on the radius appropriately. I can draw a straight line. It bisects through the long axis of the radius and into the center of the lunate. But then distally, there's a space. The third cup of tea is missing. And the capitate is dislocated out the back relative to that long axis, relative to the radius and the lunate. So if we thought about it as a posterior capitate dislocation, that would be descriptive and we'd probably have a better handle on it. Now, what does perilunate dislocation mean? Because that's what it's called. It means everything around the lunate is dislocated, and you're left to infer that that means the capitate. Got it. All right. So we'll have some images on the show notes for the lunate dislocation and the perilunate dislocation. Is it suffice to say that in general, when you're looking at carpal bones on x-rays, Really, the two most important things are looking at those Galula lines or see if you can drive your toy car through all those little spaces. So the three Galula lines, make sure those are all nice and smooth and the spaces in between them are about the same. That's on the AP. And then on the lateral, you really want to look at the lineup of the three teacups. Just as sort of a general looking at carpal bone injuries, of course, We've just talked about how we want to zero in on this differential diagnosis and really know the surface anatomy and get the mechanism of injury and then take a good physical exam before we look at the x-rays. But is that fair enough to say that those are really the two key things on carpal bones for x-rays? I would just add one thing, is that your index of suspicion should come on history and physical. And then by all means, look at it. So when you have the young adult who goes up for a dunk, comes off a mountain bike at high speed, comes off their bike at high speed and has a sore wrist, just examine their wrist properly, not just look for snuffbox tenderness, not just look at, you know, maybe touch your distal radius and touch their fingers, but touch that little, you know, that no man's land in between that nobody ever actually examines. Turn the hand over to the palm side and see what it's like. And when you compare to the opposite side and you hear the mechanism and you see the swelling, or perhaps some subtle asymmetry because you looked at the opposite side, then you'll have this heightened suspicion. And then you bring up Galula's lines. And then you bring up the capitate should sit in the lunate. The lunate should sit in the distal radius. And then you start looking for these. But if it's like looking for a pneumothorax. If you just were worried about pneumothorax, you're more likely to pick it up for old people who use x-ray and not ultrasound. But <laughs> but if you're whatever you're worried about when you look at the x-ray, it's really important. So just, just to have the clinical suspicion before you even look at the x-ray is super important rather than just this rote every time I'm going to do the same thing again and again with an x-ray. Your clinical suspicion really helps in how you look at these things. And so let me pick up on one key thing Aaron's talking about, and, and that's the history of these bad wrist injuries. So 
whether it's scaphalunate dissociation, grade three tear of the scaphalunate ligament, whether it's a perilunate dislocation, aka posterior capitate dislocation, whether it's a lunate dislocation, the one thing these have in common is super high energy mechanism in a young, healthy person. So if you live near a trampoline park, a motocross park, downhill mountain biking, a skateboard park with big ramps, you need an energy generator for these injuries. This is not a slip and fall at home on carpet in a 63-year-old, okay? And so these big stories, these anchor us to the suspicion required to then go examine somebody and look at the x-ray with a different set of eyes. Let's say we do have one of these young lads who was just at a skate park with a high mechanism of injury. He's tender. We know our surface anatomy now for the lunate. He's tender all over the place there in the middle of the wrist on the dorsal side there. And you look at the x-ray, you look at the lateral, and lo and behold, you see a perilunate dislocation. Dr. Ciel, I guess the first question would be, do we need to reduce them in the emergency department? And then the second question is, if we do need to reduce them in the emergency department, how do we do that? Yeah, so for sure they need to be reduced. The definitive treatment may not be the reduction. They may need something operative afterwards. But the longer you leave something out, the more painful it is, the more swelling it is, the more pressure that can be put onto the lunate itself. So the lunate, as Matt mentioned, is a bone with no muscle attachment to it. The blood supply is poor. It's at risk of avascular necrosis. And if you just leave pressure on it because these other carpal bones are being pulled down onto the lunate, that can actually increase the likelihood of having avascular necrosis of the lunate. So, so timely reduction is actually important. So when you go to reduce it, it's essentially, like they need good muscle relaxation. You want to recreate the mechanism. So traction is important to create some degree of space. So a finger trap works very nicely to create some degree of space. They often will need some fairly deep sedation just to help the muscles relax. And then the mechanism is usually fall on outstretched hand. So you put the wrist back in that position. You would then on the palmer side, find the lunate, hold on to the lunate, and then you bring the wrist, traction it down and bring it down into flexion. And when you bring it in flexion and you stabilize the lunate, you should feel a clunk. You should feel it come back and fall into place again. A super important thing, feel the opposite wrist before you attempt the reduction so you see what normal is like. Feel the affected wrist before you do the reduction. And then after you do the reduction, your hands will tell you, you know what? It now looks more like the opposite side. But if you don't touch, if you don't feel, you don't sometimes recognize these subtle differences. If you just try to touch the wrist after the reduction, you're like, I'm not sure if I got it or not. So these are small little pearls that can help. Muscle relaxation, stabilizing the lunate, and recreating the mechanism of injury will be helpful in achieving reduction. Great. Important to know that these should be reduced as soon as possible, that we are capable of doing this in the emergency department. And even though these are rare injuries, these are the kinds of things that, you know, you might have to pause and look it up and remind yourself how to reduce them because uh, I think I've tried one of these in my entire career. I probably missed a whole bunch to begin with. Um, but, uh, you know, this isn't something that we're doing, like, you know, reducing Coley's fractures. This isn't going to be something that we do very often. So as long as we know that they do need to be reduced and we take some time to look it up and do it right. 
And if you can't get it, don't feel bad. Sometimes there's actually other injuries around. It's hard to do. But be careful of being overly aggressive. Keep pounding and pounding and pounding away at this again, because that can also be injurious to the wrist. So you have to have like, you know, your first shot is your best shot. And then depending where you are, if you're rural, you might give it another shot. If you work like we do and there's ortho around, then you might just give ortho a call after you've tried it. So where you stand on an issue depends on where you sit. If you sit where there's no help, <laughs> you're going you're gonna to try again. If you sit where there's lots of help, then you'll ask for help sooner. Excellent. Now a word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Metricade system is partially tech and partially a professional service. The web-based tool allows me to let Metricade know exactly how I want to be scheduled. The technology and the expert schedulers work together to produce a schedule that somehow meets the needs of the department, filling every shift while still letting me work more of the shifts I want and fewer of the shifts I don't. When you have a problem, there's an expert scheduler answering the phone who probably fills 2,000 to 4,000 ED shifts a month. They know all the intricacies of ED scheduling. This is not an automated push-button schedule. The technology is a tool to help an expert build a schedule to suit your needs exactly. Go see for yourself at metricade.com slash emcases. In our big four, so far we've covered the triquetrial chip fracture, and we've covered the spectrum of lunate injuries. I want to move on to the hamate. So if anyone listening is a golfer or a skier, you probably know about the hook of the hamate fracture. Dr. DiStefano, how do we pick up the commonly missed hamate fracture or hook of the hamate fracture? Sure. Well, the first step in doing that, Anton, is not to get attached to this med school teaching. And that is that hook of hamate fracture comes from a swinging injury. I guess I should specify for the listeners, I mean swinging an implement, not another form of swinging injury. (laughs) So... Uh, it's got to be a, classically, it would be from swinging a golf club or a tennis racket or a baseball bat or a squash racket. The key part of that story is you have an implement in your hand. The end of that implement sits right against the hook of the hamate, whether you know it or not. And then if you have a high energy swing, you really swing hard and you connect with a heavy ball, like a softball rather than a hard ball or You've got SGS, you've got shitty golfer syndrome, (laughs) and you swing the club (laughs) really hard and fast, and you ground the club head, and then suddenly the club stops. Well, where's that energy go? The energy's conserved. Energy travels up the club and into your hand and breaks the hook of the hamate. So to some extent, we have to divest ourselves from that story because equally common is the hook of the hamate fracture results from a foosh. We are so radially oriented. We're stuck on the radial side of the wrist as eMERGE docs. It's distal radius and scaphoid, distal radius and scaphoid, and thumb injuries. That's only one out of three columns of the wrist. There's the radial column of the wrist. There's the central column of the wrist. There's the ulnar column of the wrist. Your patients don't tell you if they foosh on the ulnar side of the hand rather than the radial side of the hand. They don't provide that kind of history. So look for hints. Is there uh, ecchymosis, bruising over the hypothenar eminence? And most importantly, where are they tender? You know, I keep going back to what Aaron says, point of maximal tenderness on the exam. And if you're so radially focused that you actually never examined the owner side of the hand, you're going to miss the hook of hamate injury resulting from a foosh. All right, great. Is it fair enough to say that in terms of 
commonly missed and common injuries on the ulnar side of the hand from a fouche. We're talking on the dorsal side of the hand, the triquetrial chip fracture, and on the palmar side of the hand, on the right over the hypothenar eminence there, the hook of the hamate fracture. So those are kind of the two ulna-sided injuries that we need to think about when it comes to carpal bones after a fouche. So I want to talk a little bit more about the hook of the hemi fracture. So surface anatomy, Dr. Sial, could you just go over for that quickly? The surface anatomy, we're talking around the hypothenar eminence there. Where exactly do we palpate for the hook of the hemi fracture? The point of tenderness is on the palmer side. And again, like I miss this all the, okay, it's not a common injury. You didn't miss three of these your last week in Emerge because it's not that common. But if it occurs, you need to know. And if all we touch is snuff box, that's why we miss this because we don't actually widen our differential. So on the palmer side of your hand, if you come down your fifth finger, so on, you're on the volar side or the palmer side, on the ulnar side, come down the fifth finger to the very base, the very bottom of the hypothenar eminence, you'll feel a bony prominence. So it's just at the at the proximal start of the palm, also on the ulnar border, you'll feel a bone, and that bone is pisiform. And that is one of the eight carpal bones. It's really a sesamoid bone that just sits in the palm. And when you start there, what you need to do is you go a couple of centimeters distal, a couple of centimeters towards the thumb. Your hand needs to be relaxed. And when you're at that point, you basically push fairly firmly. Now, if you have a big, thick, meaty hand, you won't feel necessarily the hook of the hamate. The hook of the hamate is a bony prominence, and some people have a little nubbin of a hook, and some people have a very prominent hook. So therefore, you may or may not feel the, the hook itself, but that's where the tenderness is. If you can feel the hook, when you go a little past it, it feels like your thumb is, your examining thumb is falling off a cliff. And that's another little hint that you got the right spot. So pisiform, a couple of centimeters distal, a couple of centimeters towards the thumb, and that's where you press. Is it fair enough to say that it's pretty much in the middle of the hypothenar eminence? Uh, I wouldn't say it's in the in the middle. It's more on the the sort of the radial border of it. It's more a fourth finger down. Like when they do carpal tunnel surgery and they line it up, it's actually more the fourth finger down and the, the that little distal thenar border that comes across. So if you come down your fourth finger, like almost like the fourth web space, you come down the distal hump, the distal side of the thenar eminence, where they both meet, that's where the hook of hamid is. Okay. So kind of the radial border of the hypothenar eminence. Just distal to the pisiform. Excellent. Let's talk about x-rays. So this is one of those extra x-rays that we should be ordering if they do have tenderness there. Not only sending them just for a wrist x-ray or a hand x-ray, but we need to add this extra hook of the hamate view or carpal tunnel view, I think is the other name for it. Dr. Ciel, what is this view and uh, why should we order it? This is an extra view to try to identify fractures that may not be seen on the traditional view. So the three traditional views of the wrist we get are a PA, an oblique, and a lateral view. If we take that and somebody's injured the hook of their hamate, there's about a 10% sensitivity. So it's a pretty lousy test. Only 1 in 10 fractures will show up with this view. If you add this extra view called a carpal tunnel view or hook of hamate view, then that sensitivity of, of the plane film goes up five times, but it still misses half of them. So now it's only 50% sensitive, but that's a lot better. 
The way the test is done, and it'll be in the show notes, essentially the patient puts their forearm on the x-ray plate. With their other hand, they actively just try to extend the wrist. And then the x-ray tech brings the beam from top down when they shoot the x-ray, and they're just trying to scythe the surface of the palm. That's how they're trying to run parallel too. And the first few times you look at the view, you don't even know what you're looking at. But you can see the thumb. You can see the base of the first metacarpal fairly well. And that one carpal bone that connects to the, the thumb is called the trapezium. So any of those things, base of the first metacarpal or trapezium fracture will show up well. And then when you follow along on the U on the ulnar side, the pisiform and the hook of hamate are also fairly well demonstrated if the view is done well. So the main indication for this view is if you're worried about a hook of the hamate fracture, but equally, if it's a rare patient where you think, ah, they're sore over the busy form, or they're sore deep in their thinner eminence, maybe they have a trapezium fracture, somebody might want to order a hook of hamate view for those reasons as well. So these are just additional views, but if the hook of hamate view is negative, that doesn't mean they don't have a fracture, because the hook of hamate view is only 50% sensitive. So again, if you're worried enough to order the view, if it's negative, you're worried enough to immobilize and have them followed up. The reason it's actually important to pick this up clinically is because if we don't pick up a hook of the hamate fracture, they tend to go on to a painful non-union and the treatment is an operation. But if we pick up a hook of the hamate fracture and immobilize them, there's less chance of non-union, there's less chance of chronic pain, there's less chance of needing an operation. And operations have harm. The, ul the ulnar nerve runs very close to it. You can nick an ulnar nerve when you do the operation. So we would all like to avoid operations. That's why it's important to pick this up. If you miss an occult trapezium fracture or occult capitate fracture, it doesn't matter because they don't go on to surgery. So this is the reason it's important to pick this particular injury up. Okay. So bottom line there is if they are tender on the radial border of the hypothenar eminence, distal to the pisiform there, they should be immobilized, similar to a scaphoid fracture, to an occult scaphoid fracture. So with scaphoid fractures too, we have scaphoid views that we do. And even on the scaphoid view, if we don't see a fracture, we often will immobilize them and have them follow up similar to hook of the hamate. So if they have tenderness on that radial border of the hypothenar eminence distal to the pisiform, even if their standard wrist views and their hook of the hamate view are negative, you still need to immobilize them and have them followed up because there are occult hook of the hamate fractures which may require surgery. 100%. And that segues very nicely into our discussion on scaphoid fractures. Now, we all know a bit about scaphoid fractures, you know, that they can be occult to x-ray like we just mentioned, that there's snuffbox tenderness, etc. But again, there's subtleties. So Dr. Cial, what are some of the key clinical pearls and pitfalls when it comes to scaphoid fracture diagnosis and management. Let's start with physical exam. In the physical exam, we know there's snuffbox tenderness, but we also know there's a few other physical exam maneuvers we need to do. And then it all depends on how the wrist is either radially or ulnarly deviated. Can you just go through for us some of the subtleties of the physical exam for a scaphoid fracture? I'll tie back into Matt's point just for one second as well. So that scaphoid fractures are far less common in pre-teenagers and far less common in older people with gray hair. So just as an age-related prevalence, it's far more common. And certainly if it's surgical, it's far more likely to be in the young adult, the youngish adult up to 50, 55, whatever that age is. So that's one thing. Clinical exam is important. 
Now, if the listeners want to palpate their own snuffbox, there are studies and probably one in five, one in six people have snuffbox tenderness as physiology and not pathology. It's a branch of the radial nerve. So just snuffbox tenderness by itself right, is not, not important. You need to have asymmetric snuffbox tenderness compared to the opposite side. The position you put the wrist in when you examine for snuffbox tenderness is also very important. The way we usually create that snuffbox, the way we can see it, is we ask the patient to hike up their thumb. And when they hike up their thumb, their wrist goes in radial deviation. The next time you look, if you'll see a wrist in neutral, and then you see a wrist in ulnar deviation, far more of the scaphoid rotates beyond the radial styloid, and beyond the radial styloid is where the snuffbox exists. So if you put the wrist in radial deviation, you're actually taking the scaphoid and you're just putting it in a garage. And you're not actually palpating much of the scaphoid at all. And the only part you're palpating is the distal aspect of the scaphoid, which isn't really the part we're worried about. We're worried about proximal scaphoid fractures. So the proper way to do snuffbox tenderness is to take the wrist in ulnar deviation and palpate the snuffbox. And then if you feel tenderness compared to the opposite side, to see the other side, because maybe the patient just has baseline physiology, has some snuffbox tenderness. There are many, many tests to do, but our upper extremity specialists prefer these three. So one is snuffbox tenderness with ulnar deviation. Number two is palmar scaphoid palpation. And where you would find that is if you if you hike up the thumb and find the snuffbox, if that defines the scaphoid, then you can just roll over just below the thenar eminence on the midpoint of the thenar eminence, but proximal, right, at the level of the snuffbox, that's where palmar scaphoid palpation is. To prove to you that that's the spot, you can take your wrist, no flexion or extension of your wrist, you ultimately deviate your wrist, and then if you slowly radially deviate your wrist, you'll feel the bone hit your finger. So you know that is now the palmar scaphoid. The test itself is just touching there. Put the wrist in neutral and just press on that spot. And if they have tenderness over the distal tuberosity of the scaphoid, that is the second test that we look at for clinical scaphoid tenderness. The third test our upper extremity specialists use is they actually load the first metacarpal. So they will grasp the thumb, they'll put a good grip on the first metacarpal, and they'll piston down and push in. Now, if this is tender, any link along that chain is compressed. So if you have a scaphoid fracture, that can be sore. But if somebody is older and they have CMC osteoarthritis, which is fairly common, this also will be a positive test. So the older patient, less likely to have a scaphoid fracture, more likely to have CMC osteoarthritis, this axial load is less value in older patients if it's positive. So you can do all three tests. There are dozens of tests that can be done, something called a clamp sign, resisted supination of the wrist. And I look follow lots of patients with clinical scaphoid fractures in, in the clinic. And really, it's those first three that we use. And all these other ones that have been tested, we tend not to use them. Fantastic. So those are the three signs. There are some papers out there that I've seen that say that supination against resistance has a 100% sensitivity, which seems to me maybe could be useful because then you're much less likely to have a scaphoid fracture if they have no pain on supination against resistance. So that's another one you could add to your armamentarium. Dr. DeStefano, any comments about alternative tests that you find useful? Supination against resistance, the clamp sign, which is the one where if you ask them where it hurts, the patient will 
take their thumb and their index finger and clamp it between their snuff box and the palmar side of the scaphoid, which has a very high specificity for the diagnosis as well. Just a quick little announcement. We've added a little something on the EM Cases website. And that little something is a donation button. Why a donation button? Well, EM Cases has been free open access now for over a decade. And as you can imagine, takes an enormous amount of work, time, and effort to produce. It also costs many thousands of dollars a year to produce. So if you've been reaping the benefits from any of the EM Cases podcast, website, the Q&A Pearl of the Week, the Just for Nuggets, the Quiz Vault, the show notes, etc., these are all free. And if you're feeling generous this holiday season, please consider pressing that burgundy button on the top right corner of the EM Cases website homepage. Or if you're on your phone at the bottom of your screen, that will take you to our donation page where you have a choice to give as little or as much as you'd like to help ensure that EM Cases continues to be free open access for many years to come. Thanks so much for your support, everyone. All right, now back to scaphoid fractures. Let's talk a little bit about the x-rays. So when exactly would you order a scaphoid view? Yeah, if I'm really convinced by, by mechanism, by age, by energy, my clinical suspicion is high, I must tell you I don't routinely order specific cone views of the scaphoid. So if their standard views are normal, and I mean rigorously normal, I've looked at them, I asked the radiologist to look at them on their $20,000 high-resolution screen, but I'm really convinced by the physical exam there's a problem. These days, I, I may get a cone view depending on where I'm working, Anton, if it's in a smaller place, but otherwise I'm just going to go right to CT. Interesting. Okay. So we've got some options here. We've got going to CT, we've got doing a scaphoid view, we've got just immobilizing them and having them follow up without the scaphoid view or a CT. Dr. CL, what's your take on imaging for the suspected occult scaphoid fracture based on physical exam? So Matt and I both follow these cases up. So a couple of things. There are many different strategies on how to do this. You need to be really crisp with your physical exam to make sure scaphalunate acutely is not injured because somebody could have a normal CT scan and they could injure their scaphalunate ligament. And if you examine them in eMERGE and they have outgitis, as Matt says, and you CT their scaphoid and it's no fracture, well, a CT will not show up a scaphalunate ligament injury. So we then think, oh, well, they got nothing serious, but they actually do. And that follow-up exam, 7, 10, 14 days later, is a lot better. It's a better opportunity to be more crisp with their exam and understand where their pathology lies. So I, I'm actually not a fan of CT in the emergency department for scaphoid because I don't think it's going to change how I manage it. So that's number one. Number two, CT is not 100% perfect either. So it's a very good test, but it's not perfect. And I think, again, we'll get a false sense of reassurance if the CT were normal. If the CT shows an abnormality, great, we got the diagnosis. But if the CT is normal, I think we get a false sense and, and we get attached again to a test and not to sort of the big picture. So so I, I know some places that do CT and eMERGE as, a, as part of their protocol. I'm not a fan of it. If you could just explain that a little bit more, Dr. CL. So let's say you have someone who has a FUSH mechanism. They're in the right age. They have one or more of the three physical exam signs the plain x-ray views of the wrist are negative. You may go on to a dedicated scaphoid view just based on your physical exam if they have one or two or three of the signs. And then if they're negative, you're going to 
immobilize them in a removable splint and then have them follow up in one week. Is that sort of your protocol? Not exactly, but what I'll tell you, I definitely will do a scaphoid view because if the scaphoid view shows a fracture, our diagnosis is made and we don't have to do a CT. So radiation is relatively small, but you know, a, a, a wrist x-ray is one one hundredth of a chest x-ray. A CT wrist is about three chest x-rays. It's about 300 wrist x-rays. So not a, not a negligible amount of radiation, but it's not CT chest. I get it, but it is there. Number two, the test isn't all that available sometimes. If I do a CT scan of a wrist after hours in the evening, I'm just worried that at the end of the evening, if you, Anton, wanted a CTPA or a CT abdo, we may not get it because I've ordered three wrist CTs during the day or during the shift, and that's made it then less available to get something else. So just because of availability, I'm a little concerned from a resource point of view. I will definitely do a scaphoid view if I'm worried about them having a scaphoid fracture, because it does increase the likelihood. If it's negative, they're going to be immobilized. They should be immobilized the way your orthopedic surgeons want them immobilized. Because if there's a complication, it's your orthopedic surgeons who are going to follow them up. And it's important they walk out the door of the emergency department the way the surgeons that you work with would treat them. And there are lots of different ways to treat them. So our surgeons are happy with a removable Velcro splint with these patients. And with that splint comes advice. Take it off only for bathing. Don't go back to sport. And even if you're feeling better, you need to be re-examined in 10 or 14 days because you could have a significant injury that causes long-term arthritis in your wrist if we don't pick it up. So they need to have the advice when they get discharged. Some would do a thumb spike splint because our surgeons are happy with it. Some would do fiberglass. They don't need a cast. Suspected scaphoid fractures don't need to be in circumferential plaster or fiberglass. Then when do you follow them up? So again, there's like, this is Matt's line. I love this line. There, there are no solutions, just trade-offs. And Matt got it from an economist, Thomas Sowell, I think is the name, but Matt's, Matt's referenced him many times. So if you bring them back five to seven days, that minimizes the time that they're immobilized. Great. But in five or seven days, the soft tissue injury may not have healed. So therefore, they still might be tender in their snuff box. And the x-ray is less likely to be positive at day five to seven than it would be day 10 to 14. If you bring them back day 10 to 14, well, guess what? It's more likely the soft tissue injury clears out of the system. So if they're not tender on reassessment, they actually don't need another image. A scaphoid fracture doesn't heal in 10 to 14 days. So if they have no pain on follow-up, they had a soft tissue injury of the wrist of some sort that's resolved. And if they do have tenderness, the x-ray is more likely to be positive day 10 to 14 than it is day 5 to 7. But now the patient's immobilized for almost two weeks. So that's kind of a drag as well. So there's no perfect answer. I don't think CT and eMERGE is a perfect answer. I don't think following up at five to seven days is an answer, perfect answer. 10 to 14 days isn't a perfect answer, but we got, got to make a decision. So this is what we tend to do. We tend to have them followed up day 10 to 14, get reassessed, and then re-imaged if they're tender. Hmm. That's, that's a game changer for me. I thought I knew pretty much everything about scaphoid fractures that I needed to know because I've been having them follow up in one week, but it makes sense to have them follow up maybe more like 10 days. Dr. DiStefano, any last comments about scaphoid fractures? Yeah, I think, uh, Anton, as we're discussing the nature of trying to sort out if this patient has an occult scaphoid fracture, what to do about it, I'm reminded of Voltaire. And I think Voltaire probably has the perfect answer. And that is, the physician amuses the patient while God heals. And so no matter what you do with these occult scaphoid fractures, truly occult, they're going to get better. And really, the only worry is that the patient has an interval injury. 
like Aaron talked about with partial injuries to the scapulunate ligament or an undisplaced hookahamate fracture, the worry is not the initial injury. The worry is a repeat injury that turns a non-surgical problem into a surgical problem. The only thing I'd add to that, though, is if you have a proximal pole fracture, even if you can't see it on initial x-ray, there's maybe 20% chance of, of it not healing well, even an occult one. Even if it's totally undisplaced, you can't see it. A proximal pole, you have to be more careful about. So I would just say, like, I'll let the specialists decide that they don't need to worry about it. But I think in the emergency department, we need to have a healthy regard for scaphoid fractures. I think the summary is, if you're not sure, there's no harm in immobilizing someone for two weeks. That's the summary. Great. I want to ask a little bonus question to you, Dr. DeStefano. This might seem like an obvious answer. What is the most common occult fracture involving the wrist? Oh, Anton, good question. Savvy question. Every working doc is going to initially think it's scaphoid because we spend so much time talking about it. Look what we just did in this podcast, right? We are the problem. <laughs> and it biases our thinking. The most common occult fracture involving the wrist is the distal radius. And so before you fuss too much about touching the scaphoid in 4 million different places and doing special tests, go back and touch the distal radius. And you may find that the point of maximum tenderness is the distal radius. And aha, you have found your occult fracture. Interesting about occult fracture of the distal radius. You know, in kids, we talk about Salter 1 fractures and, you know, they're occult to x-ray. And in that case, I think about occult fractures of the distal radius all the time. But we're talking now in adults, right? I can't remember the last time I thought about an occult fracture of the distal radius in an adult. So that's also a total game changer. For me as well, working in the fracture clinic, now that I follow up these cases, I, I kind of have like two halves, whatever, to my career. The first half, I didn't work in the fracture clinic, and now the second half, I have. And in the first half, I never once in an adult diagnosed an occult distal radius fracture. And now when I work and follow up in the fracture clinic, I see more cases of occult distal radius than occult scaphoid, for sure. Exactly as Matt said, we just touched snuff box. That's our entire wrist exam and worried about scaphoid. But we never actually touch distal radius. We never think of their age. We never think of the quality of their bone, the injury that happened, the tenderness. And then if you had a pretest probability of a tie for a distal radius fracture and the x-ray is normal, guess what? They probably got a distal radius fracture because you're pretty good at what you do, right? Because you thought about it clinically. But if all we do is look at the x-ray and we don't take a history and a physical, if we don't think of a pretest probability, then we're less likely to make the diagnosis. So we don't wash by a normal ECG. We don't wash by a normal CT head. Those aren't diagnoses. A normal wrist with no snuffbox tenderness is not, is not a diagnosis either. You need a history, a physical, and you'll be surprised how many times. The natural history for occult distal radius is benign. They'll be fine. But it reminds us that the test is not perfect. And this makes us better as clinicians. Well said. All right. So just to summarize what we've talked about in this part two, first, you just need to know your carpal bone anatomy and your surface anatomy cold. So the memory aid, so long to pinky, here comes the thumb, can help you remember where the carpal bones are. And then we need to think about the prevalence of injuries. And really, it's these big four, the triquetrium chip fracture, the spectrum of lunate injuries, the hook of the hamate fracture, and the scaphoid fracture. 
for the triquetrium chip fracture. This is usually a foosh. It's pain on the ulnar dorsal part of the hand. There's that little divot that you can palpate that's in line with the fourth metacarpal. If that's tender, you need to look for that little flake on the lateral x-ray especially, and they need to be immobilized in a Velcro splint for a few weeks. The spectrum of lunate injuries can be anything from a little sprain to a lunate dislocation. It's all on the lateral view of the x-ray that we're looking at. Again, the surface anatomy is key. You want to think about getting a clenched fist view to open up that space. For the hook of the hamate, we're looking at the hypothenar eminence, and we're going just to the radial border of that and distal to the pisiform. It's not only sports like skiing and golfing that get this. It's equally as common as a foosh. And for those, if you suspect that, it's kind of like scaphoid. You should get a dedicated view of the hamate to look for that hook of the hamate fracture. And even if that's negative, you still need to immobilize them and have them follow up. And then for scaphoid fractures, of course, it's not just about the snuffbox tenderness. If you remember anything about scaphoid fractures on physical exam, it's probably that we need to ulnarly deviate the patient's wrist when we're palpating the snuffbox. And when we're looking for the scaphoid on the palmar side, it pops out a little bit more when we radially deviate. And if it's tender there, then that's another great sign. Don't forget axial thumb load tenderness. And if you want to add in your supination against resistance that does have supposedly 100% sensitivity for a scaphoid fracture. And those patients, of course, even if all the x-rays are negative, you need to immobilize them and have them follow up probably in about 10 days, not three or four days, because they're not going to do anything different in three or four days. It's really 10 days where they might be able to discern whether that's a fracture or not. That's occult to x-ray initially. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Any last pearls or pitfalls, Dr. DiStefano? Anton, yes, thank you. You know, we started this conversation with a big picture. Can we finish this conversation with a big picture summary? Absolutely. Everything starts with knowing the anatomy in your head, your brain. You need to know the anatomy. You need to be able to imagine it and visualize it. But that's not enough. That's just the start. What else has to know the anatomy? It's your fingertips. You need to touch patients and your fingertips need to know the anatomy. You need to triangulate between the patient, your brain, and your fingertip. And what I'm arguing for is kinesthetic intelligence. You can't just left brain this stuff. You got to get smart hands. And that means examining patients. Fantastic. All right. Thanks so much, gentlemen. The only thing I worry about in the future of podcasting with you guys is that you know, we've covered shoulders, we've covered elbows, we've covered wrists, we've covered ankles, we've covered knees. I just hope that we have some other ortho stuff to cover because I don't want to run out. You guys are awesome. <laughs> I got 12 hours on toe fractures if you want. <laughs> oh, God, no. <laughs> if you have problems sleeping. <laughs> yeah. um, we haven't done hip yet. I, I think we should do hip, to be honest. <laughs> okay, be next time we'll do hip. Because it's actually then. not simple. It's simple on one level, but the next level down, it's not simple. And I think we have stuff to help emerge docs. Excellent. Okay. That'll be our next one. 